0: Good morning. My name is Ben. I get to be one of the guys who continues to help us walk through the book of Philippians while we're giving Aaron, our teaching pastor, a bit of a break for the summer. Well deserved. Um, Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to start off this morning with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are filled with joy to be before you this morning and we know that as Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians He too was filled with joy because of what you were doing And that What you do is not bound up in our immediate circumstance, but you work through our circumstance And you bring great glory to yourself We pray that that would be true this morning And that this morning as we look at what it means to be united as a church that you would help to reverse the effects of the fall in our minds. We know this is your heart and we pray that the Holy Spirit will do that work well. All these things in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Paul writes to the Philippians, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Our unity as a church is of utmost importance to our Lord. Last week, we saw this priority come up that our unity also happens to be a cause for unbelievers in this world to become aware of their guilt and to become fearful of pending eternal judgment. Our unity then is a testimony to them of the power and truth of the gospel message that unites us. And in the unregenerate heart that unity produces this fearful anticipation of coming judgment and always we hope unto repentance for them and salvation so our unity is precious and it's precious to god and it's essential for our gospel witness it's also essential to us for our joy paul wants to teach us about joy in this epistle and he can't stop talking about joy throughout the whole letter paul himself is full of joy if some come against paul even against the church it doesn't matter in fact it becomes occasion for greater joy for Paul if people preach the gospel in rivalry with malicious motives Paul rejoices why because the gospel goes forward the gospel is preached and in these and in so many other ways Paul sees his suffering not as a curse but as a blessing it's a gift given to him because in that suffering the gospel advances and if the gospel advances his joy grows. Now as we begin in chapter 2, Paul writes in hope and anticipation that God would reproduce that same hope and contentment and fruitfulness in his readers. And not only that, but we see in chapter 2, verse 2, that Paul's joy is actually incomplete. And that in order for his joy to be complete, we must have unity which, of course, is exactly what this whole passage is about. Our outline this morning traces the road to unity that Paul lays out through this section. We, one, draw motivation from God's love for us to, two, prioritize others above ourselves in our thinking, which makes us more like Christ as we, three, meditate on Christ's humility. But first, we draw motivation from God's love for us in verse one. Paul begins this section with so if the so refers back to verse 27 of chapter one, where he gives this admonition, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul here is continuing to explain what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. Then there's this if. This if, in Greek, is what's known as a first-class conditional, which means it can be translated as because. And that might be an easier way to think of this. Because we perceive these things, it ought to drive us to action. What are the things that we see? Paul calls out five realities that are a motivation for unity, just in this one verse. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit affection, sympathy. Now each of these five realities focuses on God's work, his character revealed to us through his love for us. We know that these refer to God's work because the Greek words that Paul uses for encouragement, comfort, participation, sympathy, each of these are elsewhere exclusively used of God. They describe what God is doing, not what humans do. And there's that fifth word affection in there, And that can be used of either god or man but we know it's all together referring to god because of that overall pattern which is a long way to say that what paul is doing here is he's giving us a list of the benefits we have the things that we can see from god's love because we are christians let's look at each reality a bit closer first encouragement in christ this word encouragement could also be translated salvation and so what this is, is it's a reference to the encouragement that you and I should feel having confidence in Christ's saving work on our behalf. To take away the punishment we deserved and forever secure a relationship with God. And on any given day, if we sin, we have encouragement knowing that our sin does not sever that relationship and lead us into a place of despair. We know we can take heart in Christ's work. We are loved as his children, his friend, He's eternally beloved servants. And that truth inside of us as believers, it never becomes inert. It stays alive, and in fact, it grows. And as we are mindful of that, it's part of what drives us forward in faithfulness. Next, comfort from love. This word comfort carries this broader idea of encouragement. And God's love here refers broadly to all of his good works for us. This includes our salvation, but also includes everything else, big and small, in our lives. God's love for us is evident in the blessing that we have together, fellowshipping as a church, in the food we eat, in the fact that he gives special help to his servants, in the fact that there are good days, bad days, trials, and blessings. And again, as we stay observant in that and stay thankful in that, that again drives us forward to faithfulness. Next, participation in the Spirit. This is another broad term, but here the emphasis is on the work that God does through us. So he doesn't just uh, do good things to us, he brings us into his purpose, and he uses us. The full benefit of this is only realized when we are serving each other in the church. It's not a solo act, it's a community display. The Spirit works through us to help others, and through others to help us. And we should see that work for what it is, and seeing it, it should motivate us forward to the faithfulness called out in this passage. Next, affection. And this is a very interesting word. Um, The Greek word here literally, or the the actual Greek word is called splonknois, which is very literally a reference to the guts or the bowels of a person. And that might feel odd, but a parallel in our day might be how we refer to the heart as being the seat of emotion. If you say to someone, I give you my heart, or I love you with all my heart, that is a way to express a deep affection in our society. Well, in Paul's day, that was all felt in the lower abdomen, apparently. And if you had deep affection for someone, you had an intense yearning in your gut and talking about that would be the strongest way that you could express genuine affection for another person. So young men, if you're still looking for a spouse and you happen upon a worthy young woman, you sh- I suggest you tell her that you love her with all of your bowels. And and you will know if she is fit for marriage because of her knowledge of Biblical Greek. Um, but In all seriousness, this points to a reality. What of God's yearning for us? So God doesn't just give us stuff mechanically. He's not distant or aloof. He is feeling genuine, felt affection for us in the blessings that he gives us. And again, as we think about that and think of his blessings as given from a heart that yearns and a heart that that feels desire for us, that should motivate us and the last word is sympathy this word carries the idea of mercy mercy as you know is is us not getting that bad thing we deserve such as when you get pulled over for speeding but you get let off with a warning right but God doesn't do this grudgingly in in fact um, God gives us mercy knowing our weakness And it's shown to us day to day. Now, uh, we, we all have also experienced the discipline of God. Hebrews 12 talks about how when we are acting faithlessly, there can be corrections that happen where God, as a father, is lovingly causing us to experience the bad consequences of those things as a way to chasten us and to help us to do right in the future. And he certainly, though, doesn't always do that in proportion to what we deserve. There are many times when we have bad days and we realize, oh, I just said that awful thing, or I cut that person off on the highway in a way that really could have gotten me pulled over, or whatever the thing is, and we don't feel the full force of God's chastening on us. And when we recognize that, we realize that we have been shown mercy in that moment. And again, the point here is not to get off scot-free for doing evil, the point is to realize that we don't really experience, even in a temporal sense, All the consequences for every bad thing we do. And that is a sign of God's mercy for us, again, motivated from a heart of genuine affection. And so, what we see then is it's not guilt or shame that Paul is using to drive the Philippian church forward in their obedience. Rather, he's trying to give us an alternative. There's this sweet, energizing love of our lord and savior for us and as for guilt and shame they have a purpose they act as a signpost They point us back to that love of god, but they are not our masters And when we lose our drive when we stumble in serving god and perhaps we come under conviction and feel the shame That shame shouldn't be what causes us to do good that shame should point us back to god's sweet love and then the awareness of that love is what gives us that enduring and better desire to do what is good. Now, we've got to talk about what Paul is trying to propel us to do here. And so that gets on to verse 2. So back to our outline. We draw motivation from God's love for us to prioritize others above ourselves in our thoughts. In verse 2, Paul urges us to be unified with each other. This This really does encapsulate the central command that Paul is giving to the Philippians in this whole letter. And It's important to also recognize that Paul here is very directly channeling the heart of our Lord. You'll remember that in John chapter 17, Jesus prays that his disciples would be one even as he and his father are one. We are all to be one, not in some superficial way, not in some symbolic way, but we are called to a intensive, effective oneness, and we are to be so unified as Christian brothers and sisters that our unity starts to look like what? The unity that is existent in the Holy Trinity itself. That is what Jesus prayed for, and that's what God's heart is. He wants us to have a character of unity such that is so strong That could make even that difficult to understand doctrine the doctrine of the trinity god three in one not just comprehensible but believable we are to become a living picture giving evidence to that greater divine reality and as for us in the church god has yet another special future purpose for us in our unity you may be aware that a wedding is coming and a marriage that most fundamental and intimate of human relationships. The human institution of marriage, wonderful a gift as it is, it's only a picture of the coming greater full display in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paul elsewhere speaks of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 and he makes it very clear that what we experience in earthly marriage, as wonderful as it is, it's but a shadow of the coming and more glorious reality and that any husband's attempts to care for his wife, these attempts again point to that more glorious reality that Christ is himself at this very moment preparing his bride for splendor on that day of marriage. And you see, you and I and everyone else who bows the knee to Christ in faith, we are together one organism, one whole person. We are already one body in a true sense and we are being made up in splendor for that coming joy and intimacy and partnership and love wherein we together as Christ's bride will be led to our groom. Now, don't ask me how that all works, because Paul even says in Ephesians chapter five, that's a great mystery, right? There's dynamics there that go well beyond my ability to understand at this point. But what is crystal clear from this is that Christ himself is passionate and protective of the unity of his body. He has joined us together and let not any one of us ever presume on that tender protection to to tear it apart and yet we see that disunity is a great risk for christ's church and even if you've been around solid churches perhaps especially if you've been around solid churches you know this even a healthy church doctrinally sound active and engaged in ministry proclaiming the gospel even such a church is still vulnerable to disunity and we know that because paul addresses that so so clearly in this letter to the philippians paul loved this church they were rich in love giving they were sacrificial in their service they were supporting him personally in his ministry even amidst the shame of his imprisonment and they held strong to the truths of god amid hot hot, hot persecution so they were fiercely loyal to paul not flinching at the shame of his imprisonment and and yet here's paul calling them to unity and he appears to have this one worry for them this one thing keeping his joy from being complete as we see at the beginning of verse two he gives then a brief and effective description of what it looks like to have unity and he breaks it down into four parts first we are to be one in mind as if sharing a soul, having an organic and natural consideration for each other. Next, we are to be one in love, having genuine affection for each other, being ready to sacrificially and joyfully care for each other, and I might add here, being eager to forgive, passing over other's sins, eager to forget them, sometimes even when not being asked forgiveness, and being diligent to think well of others, remembering the good. Love is made up of these things next being in full accord and this doesn't mean we never see things differently or engage in peaceful edifying discussion but it does mean that we embrace each other in a spirit of mutual trust faithfully and kindly giving respect to each other and listening carefully as if again sharing a single soul and so as to ever be progressing toward agreement and lastly being of one mind this is slightly different from the same mind statement at the beginning here it means having the same purpose we exist for christ's glory unity does not exist for its own sake it's not its own final goal in fact when unity becomes the point what you lose is the actual genuine substance of church dynamics that makes us distinct from the world there are plenty of places we can go out to in the world and see a formal unity an organizational unity that facade that structure but the genuine love and joy is a unique dynamic within Christ's church, and it's strengthened as we work side to side, side by side together to push forward the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own hearts and in the lives of those around us. So these four things together are Paul's working definition for Christian unity, and they're essential for that unity, and the, that unity then befits that splendid bride that we together being made ready for that groom, that one true king in that future time. And so such a unity pleases the heart of god as it does paul and to violate that unity is to violate god's great love for us however there is significant work for us to be doing in our own hearts if we are to heed this call going on into verse 3 paul charges us do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit he doesn't go after external behaviors he instead continues to focus on that internal thinking What drives our decisions? We need to recognize when selfish ambition and conceit are the drivers. These terms work together, selfish ambition and conceit, to describe the wholeness of selfishness. So selfish ambition is that compulsion to to grow ourselves and to make ourselves greater and to make our area of ownership greater, whereas conceit is believing that our area is greater than it is and our person is greater than it is and seeking honor for ourselves. And again, together, they represent this idea of this clenching, retching, grasping, sinful animal desire we have to make much of ourselves, rather than in humility to bow the knee to Christ. Both are disastrous when in operation in the church. Now, this is easiest to see when that honor is stress-tested, okay? So, when, when everyone is getting along and saying kind things about each other, you don't see where people's hearts are at, but consider, how do you respond when someone misrepresents something you've said, or puts words in your mouth, or with other people has something negative that they say about you, true or untrue? What's your first impulse if your agenda is self-honor? Are you gonna forgive immediately and remember no more? Or perhaps go to that person in love and seeking to understand how you might have communicated better in a situation? Or is it that you make them pay the price, having offended so great a one as yourself, withdrawing in bitterness, or else confronting them in passive-aggressive bitterness, or with indignant anger in your heart. And that's just one way this plays up, but in fact, almost every interaction we have with others, we are confronted with similar micro or macro opportunities to make much of ourselves. Whether we choose to do so, then, reveals the inner reality of where our heart is at. Now, Paul gives us an alternative to prioritizing our own honor, and it's to, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, meaning that my inward compass as a Christian ought to point toward honoring others and not honoring myself. That's where I direct my creativity, my hope, my energy, my ambitions, honoring others, counting them more significant, in humility desiring that they be given more consideration, they be counted more worthy of being heard, they be given more attention, they be given more support. And you see, this totally reverses the polarity in our hearts from what is natural to the sinful mind. See, our natural mind, what do we do? We honor ourselves first, others second, God not at all. However, we are to honor God first, others second, and ourselves third, if at all. And when you reverse that polarity, you're no longer going to be dominated by your own interests. And so that's where Paul goes next in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Makes sense, right? If you're honoring others, that means counting them more significant. That means you're going to be caring about their well-being. That means you're going to need to know what's going on in their lives. And what's more, you're going to want to help. You're going to want to be a friend. You're going to want to put yourself out there. A mind that is consumed with its own honor and its own interests has little room for that kind of thinking. When you are consumed with honoring yourself, you become full to the brim and bursting with your own interests. You've got your own to-dos, your own projects, your own problems, your own dreams, your own disappointments, your own anxieties, your own hopes. And what you have is this overfull list Of things to do that leaves you with very little time or energy to honor others and part of that makes sense right because self-honor is hard work what you're in essence trying to do is make out a sinner to be more than what a sinner is when you try to build up all these things and there's always another level you finish one thing there's another thing to do you got a nice car for yourself great you can go get another one a better one your paychecks looking better now you can go get a bigger one. You had a nice vacation? You can have a longer one. You got some followers on your handle? Great. Go out and get more followers. Like you, 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 There's always that onward ability to keep honoring yourself. And if you're oriented toward, toward doing that, you're never going to get there. Now add on to that, trying to look to anyone else's interests in a genuine way, and it's lights out. You're going to have no capacity to love others. When you live in that way of thinking, in that mind, when someone else comes to you then and has a need and you happen to be the right person to help them, at best, that to you is gonna feel like a burden. Very likely, you may even see that person as a direct impediment, not only to your happiness, but also even to your Christian fulfillment. And that's gonna lead you to bitterness and resentment that snowballs, and that's not the way to do Christian ministry, and that is not the way that we honor our Lord in fellowship with him. So we cannot have that mind. But, when your heart is set on honoring others, it's different. It's a joy to see them helped, to see them grow. And it is possible to delight in honoring others. Now, you may not know this about me, but one of my personal passions is, weirdly enough, trees. I think trees are amazing. And uh, when spring came this year, I was excited each day to get out into our backyard and see how the trees were growing. We have this oak right in the middle, and as the buds started to spring out, there's this like four or five day period each year, right, as the leaves start to emerge from the buds, and you have these tissue thin bits of leaf with white, with crimson outlines. And when you take a step book sorry, a step back and look at the whole tree, you have this oak tree, but it almost looks like a cherry tree in blossom. It's incredible. And I think people rarely recognize that. But but then, okay, then, then that stops and, and it grows and it only lasts for a few days and then another week or two pass and what you get is these fully formed but miniature little perfect oak leaves with all the nooks and crannies in there. And you look at this whole tree and it's, it's amazing to see the beauty that God has put into his creation. And I could keep going. All the trees are amazing. And I love caring for them, even though I kill them a lot. Um, but here's the point. If if I can actually enjoy caring for these trees and delighting in what God is doing in a tree, how much more so am I, then, to be able to see the beauty and the work that God is doing in the hearts of you all, my Christian brothers and sisters, the amazing, surprising work he's doing, and then how Ought I then to be eager to be involved in that, to support that, to honor that, to come alongside you in that, as God blesses me with the occasion and the ability to do that, to tend to your interests, to pray for you, and to come alongside you? And then how about you for me? I hope you maybe see some of the same things going on in my life. I'm not going to pretend it's easy, but God's doing something in there. And what about you for each other? But to be able to enjoy and worship God in our support of others' interests, we can't go on clinging so tightly to our own. When we do that, we are overfull, and any chance we have to help others in a possibility of love and humility, that chance is canceled. In fact, the fact is this: we were not put on this earth to fulfill every last one of our desires. Now, granted, there are good ambitions for us to have. God has given us responsibilities. We are to care for ourselves in godly ways and for our families. Yes, so this is not canceling out all personal interests entirely. But by no means are these things to crowd out our ability and our capacity to also take interest in our Christian brothers and sisters. God did not put this on put us on the earth to solve all of our own problems nor did he leave us on this earth after we were saved for the primary purpose of working through all of our challenges and fulfilling our desires before we die putting it another way if you are to live faithful if you want to live a god-honoring life you're going to leave much of your own business unfinished in this one the people who have peace when they die and they pass in the glory they do so because they understand That success in life is not measured by how many of their own problems they're able to solve for themselves. We need to be ready to die with some of our business unfinished. And only then can it be that we don't leave the Lord's intended work for us unfinished. Now that is a hard way to think. That is a seismic shift in our understanding. And I'm going to be honest with you, this has really challenged how I think about a lot as I've been preparing this this morning, getting into it. And given how far... In this mode of thinking, this thinking of ourselves, we are conditioned to think, not only in our culture, but perhaps in some of the churches we grew up in. Is it even possible for us to think this way, becomes the question. Can we even have that kind of a mind? And Paul has an answer to that in verse 5. He says, have this mind, you can do it, you can have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means if you are a believer... You can have this mind. Why? Because you do have this mind. Now, that sounds enigmatic, right? It isn't. Having that mind is impossible for unbelievers, but having this mind is possible for believers, and in fact, we do have that mind, but the question then becomes, how do we use that mind? How do we function in that mind? How do we allow that divine motivation, that sublime, tender love of our God, to lead us to a place of trust where we can actually put aside our own interests and get genuinely involved in the interests and successes of others. This brings us to the third and final point here. We draw motivation from God's love for us to prioritize others above ourselves and our thoughts, which makes us more like Christ as we meditate on Christ's humility. We come, finally the last and glorious section of this passage verses 6 through 11 point us to the superlative example of Christ these verses are special because they are a hymn almost certainly they would have been sung and thus easily remembered by the early church it just so happens that these verses draw much of their content directly from the last part of the book of Isaiah From Isaiah chapter 40 onward, there's a section of scripture that is very often referred to as the fifth gospel. It's called that because this section of the Old Testament is without parallel in the accuracy and specificity with which it describes the character and person of our Lord. But while it is sometimes called the fifth gospel, it's probably more accurate to call it the first gospel, right? Because for a few decades after our Lord's death and resurrection, Before they had the four New Testament Gospels as we know them, all they had was the circulate oral tradition of people sharing and apostles sharing from the life of Christ. But they also had the Old Testament and they had the book of Isaiah. In fact, every Jewish town would have had a synagogue and every synagogue would have had a set of scrolls. And among that set would have been a scroll for Isaiah. And this book would have been a favorite for the very early church as it has so much to say about Christ. Now, you might remember that in Acts chapter 8, providentially, right, the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a rich official, happened to have a scroll of Isaiah he was reading from, and he was actually reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Well, Philip, one of the deacons in the early church, comes to him, and from that chapter alone, there is sufficient information and revelation for that eunuch to become converted and baptized. And so it's no surprise that in the early church, a hymn maybe many hymns would have been based on that section of scripture and such hymns like this one would have been useful for both worship and memory so that those scrolls might still rem- you know those without scrolls might still remember important details about who Jesus Christ is now what's the significance here of all this you rem- may remember from the book of acts that when paul entered any new city during his missionary journeys where would he go to preach first the synagogues that's right that is, if they had a synagogue. Interesting fact about Philippi is that they seemed to not have one, despite it being a very prominent and large Roman city. How do we know this? When Paul gets there in Acts 16, there's no synagogue for him to go to. Instead, what does he do? He has to go down by the river where there are some women there worshiping. And you see, in Jewish culture, you needed to have a minimum of 10 men to form a synagogue, and apparently there weren't even 10 faithful Jewish men in the city of Philippi. No men means no synagogue, no synagogue means no public scrolls to read from, and very likely, no easy access to this book of Isaiah. And so if you are Paul the missionary, how do you help a new church without a synagogue and limited access to any scrolls of scripture to nonetheless access scripture? The answer is, you teach them that scripture in the form of a song, and that very much appears to be what happened here. Now, I'm inclined to believe that they learned this song from Paul in his first journey to Philippi. Now, consider this. If Paul had known this hymn at that time and he didn't share it with them, wouldn't it have been very strange for him not to teach it? Moreover, we know that he knew hymns and sang them regularly. How? Because in Acts chapter 1625, when Paul and his companion Silas are imprisoned in Philippi during their first trip there, what are they doing? Do you remember when they're imprisoned? They're singing hymns, and it got late at night. It was around midnight, and they're very probably singing through all the hymns they could remember, and probably this was one of those hymns, if he knew it at that point. And what happens next as they are singing? The jail breaks open, and they come to the jailer responsible for them, and long story short, he's converted. Perhaps that same jailer had heard this hymn, On the very night of his conversion before he was converted and that jailer would have told that story how they had sung the hymns and how god had faithfully provided for their release and so now years later here's paul again he's in prison again and again he's got a hymn for them perhaps even one of the same hymns that he had been singing before And you've got him writing to the Philippians. They're worried. Is Paul going to get out of prison? Will God break the bonds? Will the gospel message continue to spread? And here's Paul reminding them in a gentle and loving way that God is always faithful, always powerful. Remember the hymn. And the substance of that power is put on glorious display in Christ's humility, which is the substance of the hymn, which says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Paul points them not to some new truth, but to the old story, foretold by Isaiah and taught to them, most likely through song. They aren't lacking knowledge. It's what they already know that they need most. And in this sense, they already have the mind of Christ. They just need to have the mind that they already have. This is what the old song points to. Philippians remember that meditate on that pray on that model your humility on that build your unity on that and as you do consider Christ enjoyed the full privileges of the form of God, but he laid down those dignities Was it his own puffed up conceit that motivated that or was it embracing our interests? And us then to what do we grasp clinging so tightly thinking that God surely doesn't mean us to let go of something so precious to us? So important to our honor, is there anything that we grasp to, anything we hold to, that is worth comparing to what Christ gave up, giving up that face-to-face fellowship with the Father, giving up being regaled in matchless glory? What then did Christ become? A servant in his form, morphe, which means essence, substance. Christ never gave up his deity, but he did willingly forego the privileges of deity, and he embraced human limitations in his incarnation. He felt weakness. He felt limited understanding. He got tired. He got exhausted. But through this, he became our faithful and sympathetic high priest, knowing oh so well all the temptations we face. He got involved in our interests, all while never sinning. And us then, is there a position of weakness or indignity that we are unwilling to embrace? Is it further beneath us to embrace that? Then The human morphe was beneath Christ. Is that what is keeping us from minding others' well-being and interests? But Christ wasn't done there. He humbled himself further, learning obedience to the Father, an obedience that was unbounded and ultimately led him to a humiliating death, stripped now even of the dignity afforded to humans, and he suffered agony beyond which anyone in the room is likely to know. And with it, he took our guilt on himself. And he felt his fellowship with the Father be totally severed. And then us. Are there then tasks so unpleasant for us that they are worth, you know, comparing to what Christ has done for us? I don't think so. So to have Christ's mind, that is a high cost. Humility is a high cost. And bringing it back here, unity comes at a high cost. The becoming of Christ is... The most difficult thing we'll ever do. But it means that it is something that it is worth striving for us to do because now we get to meditate on the second half of the hymn. And it's worth the full cost because we see that if Christ in this hymn is the perfect example for those who would be humble, as a result of Christ's humility, he's exalted. And Christ will get an exalted name, higher than every name. But will the humble not also be given a stone with a new name, exalted name, as John records in the book of Revelation? And when all bow the knee, the law that Christ receives from every person, believer or not, will not the humble servants of Christ also share in this witness? And won't the humble servants be overcome with joy for the Savior's well-deserved exaltation? And won't the humble, victorious Savior look with special kindness on his good and faithful servants? And when every tongue confesses Christ's worthiness as Lord, will not the humble who sacrificed greatly in the name of their dear Lord, will they not share in that triumphant vindication for all eternity? And so, church, I am telling you what you know, not what you don't know this morning. Our unity as a church is tied up And our faithfulness to continued meditation on the gospel message and what it says about Jesus Christ's humility. The gospel message in that sense is not for unbelievers. In that sense, it is for the believers. It's for Christ's bride. It's for us. May God make every last one of us faithful to know what we know, to have the mind of Christ that we already have, that our unity may please our dearest, kindest Savior, and we be found walking together worthy of our calling on that blessed day of his return. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this passage is glorious and invigorating. It is hard to think of what we must give up to know that In a sense, you always come for Isaac in every one of our lives, and yet you always show us that you are a God who exalts the humble. Please help us to let go of those things that cloud our judgment and cloud our ability to serve you well, and instead make us mindful of Christ and form Christ's humility in our lives as we seek to serve each other and ultimately seek to glorify you. We pray this all in his perfect name. Amen.